0: Uh, It was early August of 1992, almost 30 years ago, uh, when I found myself in New York City for the first time. Uh, I was about a third of the way through my uh, seminary education and had gone with a few friends to Washington, D.C. to work for the summer, uh, covering what we called field education hours for my graduate degree. And the trip to New York was a chance to see what was going on um, with homelessness there in the city and how ministries were attempting to deal with it. So we agreed after our summer in D.C. to head up to the city to work with a church on the Upper West Side that had a mission to one of the strangest things that I think I've ever seen in ministry. In the years prior to our visit, there were a group of of like a little over a hundred homeless people that had taken up residence in this strange little highway roundabout at 79th Street and Riverside Park, which due to an elevation drop, had made this little smallish rotunda alongside the traffic circle. The interior space was cold and concrete, but it it put a roof over the heads of some of these homeless people. Well, the church that we were working with led us down into the rotunda to bring water and food to the homeless people there. But more than that, they really wanted us to start conversations to begin to humanize these people and figure out exactly what they needed. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I was anywhere approaching what we might call comfortable uh, in those first 20 minutes of descending down into that little makeshift village. But as I sat on a cot beside a friend of mine uh, speaking to a young lady uh, after delivering water and food to her, I asked the young lady how it was that she got here. And I honestly don't remember much of what she said. A lot of it was very incoherent due to some clear mental health issues that were going on. But at one point I asked her how it was going getting help. And she replied that she had been to various places with more or less success. But then she dropped this little nugget. She said, truthfully, there's some people down here who are doing the best that they can to contract AIDS. Because the city will give you a free apartment if you have AIDS. Well, my friend and I sat there absolutely speechless. And, and thankfully, this lady, this lady actually acknowledged after that 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 didn't seem like that was a good idea. We agreed. But I really left that experience being scarred forever by what I now refer to as the problem of human cities. The problem of the city. Because cities, if you think about them, are amazing inventions. People get together. There's a a capacity for creativity and opportunity and security and thriving. But alongside all those good things invariably comes astounding human suffering. You've got economic neglect and racial tensions, unemployment, poor housing, not to mention the tensions that invariably exist between police and poverty. All of those things thrive in human cities as well. But what's interesting about that, what brings it to our attention this morning is, when I, when I was in junior high, I read somewhere that there was, in 1980, some 39% of the world lived in human cities. By 2015, just five or six years ago, it was 54%. Statisticians uh, have said that by 2050, we expect it to be 66% urban. In other words, the world is urbanizing before our very eyes in our lifetimes. And the reason why I find this so interesting is that in our passage we see the Apostle Paul in the midst of this massive missionary effort to bring the gospel to all the known world at that time. But as he travels from place to place, he seems to be targeting human cities. And without question, two of his most dramatic churches, one in Corinth and one in Ephesus, were also the cause of some of his most uh, discussion and and probably uh, frustration. If you think about these major cities, John Stott in his commentary says it helps to think of these ancient cities in terms of what we know in American cities. He says, you know, Athens was the intellectual center of the empire, much like what we might think of Boston in our day. Corinth was a commercial center, which would be comparative to New York. Ephesus was a popular cultural center and also the housing of the occult, which would have been a little bit like Los Angeles in our world. Rome, of course, was the political power center and kind of had analogies to Washington, D.C. The point is this. All of the evidence that we have in Paul's career of planting churches showed that he was targeting city centers in order to get the gospel out. Why? Well, that kind of brings me to my topic this morning. Because it seems that in Paul's desire to fulfill this commission from Jesus to be a light to the Gentiles, that he purposely engaged in church planting as the real heartbeat of accomplishing that mission. This was what he came to do. It was an exercise evangelizing the world. Let me put it this way. In Paul's mind was an exercise of church planting. Now, my guess is that sounds a bit foreign to some of you because in our day, there, you, you, when you hear the word evangelism, especially if you're older, you tend to sort of uh, associate you know, these one-on-one confrontational encounters between two people, I don't know, with like a tract or a pamphlet of some sort. Uh, If you're younger and you hear the word uh, evangelism, you probably think of like an obnoxious way uh, that people invade your personal space and, I don't know, attempt to talk you into their way of thinking, which of course is an obvious affront to your personal freedom. But this semester, as we go through this whole idea of Jesus continued, we need to see that when the Bible talks about evangelism, it is thinking about the establishment of of innumerable little colonies, we might call them. Little outposts, if you will, of Jesus communities who themselves are seeking to radiate out from their context the power of the gospel in these cities. And So what I want to look at this morning is how Paul goes about strategizing these cities, why he does what he does, and maybe see what we can't learn from it. So three things this morning. We want to see an urban strategy that Paul employs. We want to see his mixed evangelism methods. And then finally, we want to see the echoes of the cross that are throughout the entire text. First of all, let's start with this urban strategy. You need to do a little bit of a 50,000-foot analysis to see kind of what Paul is doing. But the good news is, is you finally get to make use of those maps that used to be at the back of paper Bibles. Kids in the old days, they were Bibles that were on paper in little books. But they had maps in the back of them, and they always traced Paul's missionary journeys in some of those. Y'all remember those? Look at verse 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, if you had a map, this would be much more helpful. Paul has been to Athens and Corinth in Greece, and he wanted to go to Ephesus over in Asia Minor. The quickest way to do that would be to take a boat across the Aegean Sea and arrive at Ephesus. But instead, it says, he went all the way around through the inland northern portion of the Aegean Sea to get to Ephesus. Why did he do that? Answer, so that he could visit the churches that he had planted throughout that area. So John Stott makes it really clear that what Paul was doing is choosing church planting methods to deliberately focus on these city centers. Obviously, it's not much of a stretch to think that he would go into these cities and know that there were plenty of Jewish synagogues where he could preach. Not only that, cities had resources enough that could come together and financially uh, plan and help other church plans. In other words, the way in which you see the gospel most fundamentally spreading is through the establishment of what one commentator called radiating centers of influence at the key points in the empire. What's the point? The point is, it's always been Christian's practice to think about putting churches in strategic places. We actually went through this in the last couple years here in our own church. Our own Foster and Laura Gullet, our missionaries to Italy, spent many fruitful and wonderful years in Bologna, Italy. But having been there for that time, they began to realize that if you really wanted to reach Italian culture, you needed to be in Milan. So they shifted their ministry focus for that very reason. We've always been doing that. The second thing I want you to see about this urban strategy, though, is that Paul tends to go through really discernible phases as he plants these churches. And you see this really clearly in in chapter 18. In verse 3, we find that he arrives there, but he's got a little side hustle that helps him pay for the effort. It's tent making. And he does that for a while early on while he sets up kind of a base of operations. But by the time we get to verse 5, we find that Timothy and Silas, his two ministry partners, have now arrived. And so Paul begins to go full-time ministry. Verse 5 says he was occupied by the word. Next, we see in verse 7 that suddenly the movement moves into people's homes, like the home of Titius Justice, which served as outreach meetings. Of course, they lived right next door to the synagogue, which probably helped him witness to some guy named Crispus, like it said in verse 7. Finally, we see Paul settling into long-term ministry that was educational in nature in verse 11, where it says he stayed there for a whole year and a half. Here's my point that you see in this pattern. Christians have always found a way to start small and advance that ministry into a plant that finally reaches maturity. And from there, the encouragement was to see that mature plant then go and plant other churches That's always been the pattern and is the definition of healthy growth. But now notice, the emphasis was always maintained on the mission of the church. Not growth for growth's sakes, but always how they were impacting their community. All right, now why are we going through all this? Well, simply because of this. Because Oxford is a growing Mississippi city. Uh, if not one of the more influential cities in the state, certainly one of the fastest growing in the state. It's happening to us. (laughs) But there's an interesting spiritual thermometer that you get in watching people react to Oxford's growth. You know, because invariably what happens to a lot of is like, ugh, more students, more traffic, and we're always bugged about it. But in reading through, through Acts, that strikes me as maybe slightly sub-Christian. The instinct, I think, for God's people is to look and see the growth that's going around. It's to be like, hey, new opportunities. Sure, there'll be experiences of human suffering, but that get, that's job security for the church. That's where we're called to serve. How can we move in among those people? I heard one minister use an illustration where he was talking about a little verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. It's written to a group of people who were in exile. I'm talking like enslaved in a foreign country, the Jewish people in Babylon. And listen to what the prophet says to them. But while you're there, seek the welfare of the city where I have set you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. you hear that? While you're in Babylon, pray for Babylon and seek its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And this is what this preacher said. He said, we need to be the kind of a church that if you dropped a bomb on it on Sunday mornings and wiped out every member inside of it, that the city would weep because of what a service and what graciousness you had brought to the city, whether they believed your gospel or not. That's the goal. So I think we have to think about this. What is my investment in this city? How am I as a Christian seeking Oxford's welfare? Can Christ's Pres be on the leading edge of our university's commitment to be a great public institution? Do we have a role in that? How can we be partners in advancing the arts in our community? How can we come alongside other agencies as we minister to the poor around us? How can we be on the program of enhancing an already hospitable town, but to something beyond just the the kitsch of the square? (laughs) Can I be a part of that? How are we strategizing for the way that Christ Press can be a light to this community? Because this has always been the strategy for Christian churches. It's always been how we've moved out into into the world. So there's an urban strategy, first of all. But secondly, I want you to notice that Paul has a, has a mixed approach to evangelism as he does. Chapter 19, we see Paul heading over to Ephesus, this other major, major city on the western end of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey in our day. He's going to plant a church there. And this pattern is very similar to what you had in the first part of 18, if you notice, with one exception. When you get to verse 9, it says that there were some who stood up and took public issue with what Paul was preaching. So what does he do? Well, he shifts his ministry to the Hall of Tyrannus. What in the world is that? Well, we actually don't know a lot about what that hall was, but probably we're guessing that it's an an education hall. This is a place where philosophers and teachers would hold classes. What's very interesting, though, is there's actually a textual tradition that some of your Bibles will include, others won't, that adds the times in which Paul would teach these classes. It's from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., And if that's true, it means that Paul was was borrowing a certain space of time in which most of the rest of the Mediterranean world would be enjoying a midday siesta. That was traditional in that particular culture. What's the point? Well, the point is that when Paul starts to work in these cities, he employs this marvelous kaleidoscope of the means by which he acts as an evangelist. In the Hall of Tyrannus, by the way, he's not preaching per se, The word translated that they had discussions daily, that's actually one Greek word. The Greek word dialogaminos, from which we get the word dialogue. What's it saying? It means that Paul was holding these daily dialogues. They were discussion times for people to ask questions, present their ideas. Think about that. For two whole years, Paul is engaging in small group ministry in Ephesus. And by the way, seeing tons of conversions from it, If verse 10, is to be believed. So isn't that fascinating that Paul, when Paul thinks about evangelism, he is not locked into one way of thinking about it. One commentary I read identified at least five different forms that Paul saw of evangelism. The first one, of course, was preaching. Yes, they saw preaching as a form of evangelism. As Paul would go into the Old Testament, he would exposit some of those texts there and apply them in, in very specific ways which is a distinctive of Acts preaching, by the way. There was always preaching that put it in the lap of the people to grapple with it. It wasn't because they were trying to be super uh, fancy or you know, crafty with their sermons, but that's just the nature of Jesus' claims. They're kind of in your face when you really look at them. That's what preaching did. Secondly, though, he did what we might call dialogue evangelism, where the format was probably looser. People could ask questions, interact with the material. It also allowed for eavesdroppers to be standing around and sort of think through what they were saying in sort of a casual way. Thirdly, we know that Paul was doing what we might call contact evangelism. What we mean by that is there were sort of chance encounters, so to speak, of meeting people and confronting them on matters of faith as soon as you met them. By the way, this is the form of evangelism I think most of us think about when it comes to doing evangelism, handing people's tracts. And Paul certainly was involved in it. Fourthly, he describes what we might call friendship evangelism. This is one that's rooted in hospitality because Paul would enter these people's homes, enjoy time with them, and invariably questions of the matter of Jesus would come up. It was a friendship evangelism. Fifthly, and finally, we saw him engaging in what we might call apologetic evangelism. Apologetics is just that, that way in which you defend the faith, uh, in your, defend your belief in Christianity against doubters and skeptics. And so Paul was all about it. He was ready to take on anyone who was trying to discredit his message, even to the point of quoting from their secular resources in demonstration of his point, like we looked at last week. So what you begin to see is this beautiful kaleidoscope of how Paul engages in ministry and not these narrow ways, from which I think we can learn so much, at least a handful of things that we could have as takeaways from Paul's ministry. The first one is this. Paul is so much more flexible in his methodology than most churches are. Invariably, what happens to a church as it matures is eventually you start getting used to the way in which you do it. And invariably, the way you do it is the way it must be done. And and, and the church calcifies around that. But what happens is we invariably start getting condescending about other churches that may be doing things in slightly different ways and it actually helps no cause of Christ. Look, flexibility means that we've got to stop getting condescending about other people's efforts, but continue to do well what it is that God's called us to do. Second thing we see from Paul, I think, in this is that Paul spends a lot of time in public spaces. Y'all, this is absolutely crucial. Paul did not plant a church so that people would come to him. Rather, he went into their spaces so that he can have conversations with them about life and interject himself there. I realize it's a little bit of a weird thing to say after we've all spent exorbitant amounts of money to build this lovely facility that you have around us. But here's the deal. The real work of ministry happens in your small groups. It happens in your conference rooms. It happens in your offices and your study nooks, students. Now, granted, if that leads to a small group and you need some space to be able to have that place, guess what? We got you covered and accommodated here at this place. But the gospel is supposed to push us out of here. This building was built to be a training facility for God's people. It is not built to be a war bunker where we hide from all the bad people out there. It's not the purpose of this. Thirdly and finally, we can see that Paul was not afraid of intellectual debate actually quite the opposite he made himself quite available to people who didn't believe even to the point of giving up his own time when he would normally be having the uh, i don't know the afternoon siesta with everybody else he was there so that he could mix with unbelieving people so here's my question do you have that kind of pattern do you see your exit from a place like this as the time in which your job begins as a believing person or have we gotten to the mentality where it's more like well you know what We don't hang out with those people. You know, we see things like this. Well, you know, honestly, I don't go to the grove because there's just a bunch of drunk people there and and, and women who have too little clothing on. Now look, never, ever violate your conscience. And if that's where God has led you in that regard, you have (coughs) the full blessing to avoid such things. But you know what? We've got to be very careful, though, that we're not going to the very places where there might be hurting people from our city. Where are they gathering? Where do I have natural contact with them? How is God able to use me in my various stations in which he's placed us all to be salt and light in that community? So we see Paul has this urban strategy. He's got this mixed approach to evangelism. Finally, I'm gonna end with this. We see these echoes of the cross in Paul's method here. I realize that this is our our next to last sermon. We only got one more sermon in Acts that we'll do next week. And I just want to make a broad point about Paul's missionary efforts through this, and it's simply this. Y'all, this was hard. Paul went through all kinds of things. He's had fights along the way. There was opposition without fail. Much of it from people that were supposed to be Christians, fighting each other. And there's a lesson to be taken away from this, and it's simply this, that the business of building, growing, and maintaining Jesus' church is rarely easy. And it is often messy. So much so that we might might need to be rebuked in our own minds of that idolatry that comes up when we're going to skip from church to church to church in search of the perfect one. Perfect churches had conflict in them as well. That's normal. It's been been that way since the very beginning. The question, though, that I want to entertain, though, is what is it that keeps us in the game when it gets that messy? Well, you've got to see something that you might miss in your first read-through Acts. Because if you look at the closing chapters of Acts, especially starting in chapter 21, you're going to see a change in Luke's writing style. Because what he does is he begins to really slow down the narrative greatly. And you get all this random detail about where Paul was, what he said, what he did. A lot of it, what you and I would call unnecessary detail. Now, here's my question, though. Where else in the New Testament... Do you get that kind of slowed-down narrative? You ready for this? It's in the passion narratives of the Gospels. (laughs) Think about this. If you go back to the Gospels, almost all of them, comparatively, they race through Jesus' early life and ministry. But as soon as they get to the weekend of the cross and the resurrection, I mean you get minutia of detail. It slows down, and you get all this stuff about the times and the actions and the words. And the commentators say, and I think they're exactly right, that Luke is doing that on purpose. Why? Because even as Paul goes through all these injustices, you'll see this over and over again. Courts will sort of bring him up and, and beat him, and he gets thrown into jail for wrong reasons. But you still get this sense that there's a guiding hand taking its toll on Paul's body and on his spirit which by which Luke, I think, is telling us, guess what? Paul's journey was very much like what Jesus' journey was. He was following a similar trajectory. And if this is what Jesus experienced, and it's what the Apostle Paul experienced, then why do you and I think that it's going to be any different for us? That we have an expectation that the way of Jesus is going to be hard. Sometimes those difficulties for us as a church, I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about Christ prayers. Sometimes those difficulties will come from the outside in, from the people who hate what we're doing here. At other times, it's going to start on the inside, and it's going to be when we can't seem to get along with each other. It's coming, if it ain't already here. The road is hard, but here's the deal. The encouragement that God's people have always drawn is saying to themselves, but this is the way of Jesus. If it happened to him, it's going to happen to us. But guess what? He walks with us in the midst of it. Look, we have to rid ourselves of this mentality that we only associate God's blessing of any given church or congregation on whether or not things are going smoothly. And we tend to do that. We interpret smoothness as being in God's will. But according to the New Testament, that's not the case. Nobody wants for things to go poorly or for people to suffer or for injustices to be committed. But if the witness of Scripture is true, these experiences, the way in which God is going to do amazing things, totally off the radar of the world's watching. And it, and it, and it occurs to me as, as, a, as a beautiful thought that God is constantly working, even the things that you and I look that drive us insane, that we think, oh, this just feels so petty even to pray about. It's so annoying and yet God's still at work. Tim Keller had a line that he put together a number of years ago where he said, think about the Apostle Paul planting these churches with this Jesus movement. What did he have to work with? <laughs> he says, look, if you and I decided we put together a strategic plan, Christ Prez in 2,000 years, or 2,000 years ago, decided that we wanted to be something. Number one, we want for 75% of every human on the planet to be aware of what we're doing. We want 25% of the whole human race to actually devote their lives and center their life around Jesus. Third, we want a body of teaching that will be so influential and that it'll be nothing but be greater in human history. And we want for whole civilizations to build their civilization on our view of human flourishing. So how are we going to do that? Well, your strategy, if you want to do that, would probably not include your leader being born in a stable, in the midst of animal urine. He wouldn't be born in a little town in the middle of nowhere. He wouldn't spend his entire life and ministry outside of the networks of economic and political and academic power. He wouldn't walk through life without any kind of academic credentials and then finally be executed very early in his career as an absolute disgrace. Probably wouldn't choose that as a strategic plan. (laughs) And yet... That is the way in which God's spirit works. And when you and I go through the kinds of things that God has in store for us as a church, as we begin to think through and pray through God, what will our mission in this community be? We're going to be tempted to see these things as mundane, and they're just not. The prophet will come up and say, do not despise the day of small things. It looks small, doesn't it? We're just trying to repair the relationship between me and my family member with whom I am presently estranged. I'm trying to get over my hurt feelings when it looked like she gave me a dirty look at the last Bible study, and I just feel like I need to talk to her about it. You know, we're trying to come up with a strategy that makes these small groups more accessible and easier for us to have better community, and I just get so frustrated every time we get and try it. Seems like a small thing, doesn't it? Like a teeny tiny thing. But Jesus is saying, this is the way it has always been. Because in my economy, it's not small at all. And if you can put those eyes on, then you can see what I'm doing in ways that you couldn't before. And maybe God will bring us on to advance his mission. Isn't that what we want? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is what we want, but we oftentimes don't know how to get to it other than to lift ourselves up to you and say, Lord, help us grant us, we pray, something that would encourage us and clarify for us what you would have us to do, even if it's the small things. Father, we come here to do a small thing this morning by putting little pieces of of, of bread and a small little swallow of juice inside of our bodies. And the world will look at it and think it's crazy and foolish, especially how we describe it. But we know that it's not a small thing. You're working massively in it. Would you show us that and let us rejoice in it? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.